Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 today, and I'm going to read, uh, I think I'm going to read the whole chapter actually, so we'll, uh, we'll just jump in uh, before, we, uh, before we get distracted with anything else. So Exodus 5. And I'll start from verse 1. It says, Afterwards Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And just as an aside here, this is an interesting line. Moses is deviating from the script. This is not what God told him to say. And I'm a little unsure looking through some of the commentaries and some of the the, the people who know more, more than I do here about whether Moses is being intentionally deceptive to Pharaoh. Uh, whether Moses is kind of uh, in- injecting something into the narrative that he thinks will make it easier, um, or whether he's speaking in a way that Pharaoh might understand. Or maybe he's just trying to pull a fast one. If he can get out of, if he can get out of Egypt for three days, then they're gone. But it says, but the king of Egypt says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Anyone have a boss like that before? bit of a taskmaster. Why are you distracting yourself with other things? Get focused on what I've asked you to do. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people in the land are uh, are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. And what is interesting here is is Pharaoh wants to keep them as slaves. There's both the the prestige of Pharaoh won't allow these people to leave. It would would look bad uh, for him to let them go, but also financially, Uh, it would be a bad move for him just to let them go. This is a free labor service that he's got going on. And Pharaoh sees these people as little more than animals serving his purpose. It says, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as they did before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. This is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. And so here Pharaoh makes makes the, the already pitiful and difficult situation of these people even more miserable. It says, then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Uh, Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people are scattered all over Egypt, gathering stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers keep pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had the straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelites uh, and their overseers that they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your people. And again, Pharaoh says, lazy, 
That is what you are, lazy. You keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to your work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. And the Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble, and they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And here Pharaoh looks to turn their struggles against Moses and Aaron. He looks to to, to use this as an opportunity to turn them away from God and the promises that God has for them. And so often it's true for us that challenging circumstances may look to turn us and our attention away from God and his promises. And the chapter finishes like this. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and says, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And the chapter ends there. And there's this, there's this unresolved tension in this passage. And, and we'll, we'll get to Exodus 6 and what God says to Moses and what happens next next week. But I think sometimes it's important for us to pause in that moment. Sometimes life is like that, that there is an unresolved moment, that there is this tension, there's this challenge, that things don't go the way that they ought to, they don't go the way that we expect them to, and we're left sitting in that place. And I think it's important that we are honest about that sometimes. So things don't don't always work out exactly the way that we expected them to. And the truth is often we are left with disappointment in life. How many of you are excited for a sermon about disappointment this morning? (laughs) But it's true, disappointment is is a natural part of our experiences. And some of you are thinking, oh, I'm disappointed already. I promise it will get better. But what we see here is God's people go from the frying pan to the fire. And the situation is tough. The situation they find themselves is even worse than it was before. And if you think that, you know, they're thinking there, we're slaves in Egypt, we're oppressed, we're cruelly beaten, we worked uh, incredibly, incredibly hard, and, and how can it get any worse? And then all of a sudden, Moses comes and tells the, the leaders of Israel that God has heard your cry, that God is going to liberate you. And there's this hope and there's this expectation, there's this excitement about what God is about to do. And yet what happens next is things get worse. Neil said in in one of the first messages of this series that that Exodus tells the story of God's plan. And that ultimately, even in the mess and the pain, God God has a plan. And we've said that, that Exodus is our story too. And so when we see that God has a plan, we need to recognize that we will encounter challenges My first point is this, is, is looking at the corruption of slavery and oppression. That experience that Israel are going through is our experience too. 
If I'm honest, I've been waiting a little while uh, and, and getting quite excited about arriving at this passage, this part of the story, because it, it contains that first confrontation between uh, Moses representing God and, and Pharaoh representing Egypt, and that first great cry of freedom, let my people go. That wonderful, that, that cinematic moment in which Moses stands before Pharaoh and delivers that message on behalf of God, let my people go. And he delivers that message. He kind of says, so we want to hold a festival to God in the wilderness. And Moses, Moses has made his way to Egypt. He's delivered God's promises to the elders of Israel, uh, which uh, much to Moses' relief, I'm sure, were received favorably. They were excited. They listened to what he said and believed. And so now Moses and Aaron make their way to Pharaoh himself, and they confront Pharaoh and, and indeed they confront Israel, in a way, with this question. Are these people slaves or sons? And what Moses says here to Pharaoh is very dangerous. He says to Pharaoh, not only are these slaves not yours, but they belong to a God who has claim over them. If you actually look at the previous chapter in Exodus 4, when God uh, instructs Moses what to say to Pharaoh, which he doesn't say here, and he gets to it later, I think he's a bit slow on the uptake. But what he says to Moses is that Israel is his firstborn son, and that he will lead his son out of Egypt. And, and this is important language because it recurs throughout the book, certainly uh, between this point here and Exodus 15, the idea of, of Israel being God's son, being God's child. And you'll see in your translation, sometimes it says, uh, depending on what translation you use, son or child, so the, the children of God, that Israel is his child. But that the language is very important here. And needs, uh, it'll be more important in, in a couple of weeks' time when we get into this, but just, just remember that in the previous Pharaoh had sought to destroy the sons of the Hebrews. And now God has come to challenge Pharaoh and says, these people, these slaves that you think you own, they are not slaves. They are my firstborn son. File that one away in your mind for a future week, okay? But what, I love what Moses says. This is, he wants us to go out for a festival. And as I've said, I'm not sure if Moses is being cunning here, looking for a way to sneak the people out and kind of get them away from Egypt without conflict. Or if, the, or if that's, there's something implied here, that stating the people belong to God and not to Pharaoh implies that he no longer has authority. But one of the things that we've been saying is that if Exodus is our story too, it's not just a story that we look back on, but it is our story too, that we place ourselves in this story just as God's people have done for generations. You've got to ask the question, what slavery have you slipped into? The Hebrews went to Egypt. They went down to Egypt, not as slaves, but as guests, welcomed in with prestige and importance. You look at the story of Joseph as he brings his family into Egypt to survive famine. And yet slowly, gradually, over time, their position has shifted until they were enslaved. Let me ask you, what are the things that you have allowed into your life 
that at the time may even have appeared as a good thing, but have actually grown into something that is an oppressive influence over who you are. Church, as we, as we think about the disappointments in life, as we think about, about how things aren't the way they should be, what, what the Bible tells us to do first and foremost is to stand truth, uh, to stand firm in the truth that you are not a slave but a son of God. That you are not a slave but you are a child of God, that you are beloved and precious. Galatians uh, chapter 4, 4 to 7 says, but... Uh, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And the language of sonship here is not just kind of, um, it's not sexist language, it's not kind of the patriarchy here, but but the idea is, is that within that society, the sons are the ones who would inherit, particularly the firstborn son. And the idea of the authority of the father passing on to the son. And what is so countercultural and revolutionary here, when Paul writes this letter, he's not saying, well, guys, you're sons of God. Girls, well, you know, you you can be something. He he says, the entire family of God, the church, the children of God are sons. You all equally receive that authority and that status. He says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls our Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you were his child, God has made you an heir. And so as we think about about dealing with disappointment, when we think about dealing with those difficult seasons of life, we start by knowing who we are, that we are a child of God. And it's important to, to stress here, you don't earn that status. You don't, uh, you, you don't become a child through effort or through searching or striving for it. You belong. God calls Israel his children. And what is amazing, it's important to recognize, is that they, they didn't deserve that. They didn't earn it. They weren't more uh, desirable or special or, or important than the nations around them. The reason God calls Israel his children is because of God's faithfulness and commitment to Abraham. God's faithfulness and commitment to his promises. Church, equally, we are children of God because of Jesus and God's faithfulness to him. And so we ask, well, what is God's intention for Israel? If they are sons and not slaves, what does that mean? Because the promise of God for his children is Sabbath and purpose. And I love that that Moses uses the language that God requires Israel to leave Egypt, not not merely for a worship service, not just for sacrifice, but for a festival. That God wants to take a group of slaves out of their slavery and lead them into celebration. And I love this because I'm, I'm convinced this is vital to understanding that the heart of who God is, that he longs for freedom for us, that God's freedom, it, it, it's rest, it is peace, it is forgiveness, it is purpose and identity and mission. That one of the first things that God instigates for his people when they eventually lead them out of slavery is to establish Sabbath. I love that God leads his people out of slavery and into new life. And Sabbath rest is so important later on. 
part of what it looks to do is, is to eliminate this slavery mentality in his people. Part of the process of God bringing Egypt out of Israel, just as, bringing, as he brings Israel out of Egypt, is to say you are not slaves anymore. You get a day off. That you are to rest, that you are to cease from what you do. You are not slaves. You don't work to, uh, to, to someone else's instruction. That they needed to know deep within them, within their identity, that they are free, that they are children of God. And God places, uh, God places restrictions of what they can do on the Sabbath, not to limit them, not to impede their freedom, but to establish it. Sometimes we need, I know some of us can, can relate, sometimes we need to be told to take a day off. Sometimes we need to be told, slow down and focus on what matters. Stop getting so wrapped up in the busyness of life. Sabbath was this great humanizing principle. You are not slaves. You are not machines. You, you were built for rest and recovery and restoration. And you were built to rejoice. That you were made for rest. That the rest isn't simply a weakness within our system that we've got to stop every now and again. But it is something that, that rebuilds and rejuvenates us. That it is good for the soul. I want to ask you, what, what does your Sabbath rhythm look like? So often we are over busy in our lives. That we don't slow down, we don't, we don't slow down around the things that matter most. Do you take time to stop and unplug? Do you take time not to rush from one appointment or priority to the other? Uh, do you take time to celebrate? I love that idea that Sabbath isn't just a chance to not do anything, but it's a chance to celebrate the things that matter most. And the reason I like the word rhythm when it comes to Sabbath rest is because it's more than just a day. It's a pattern. That God's people, and you'll see this in, in the, 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 chapters, the later chapters of Exodus and on through the rest of the Torah, the rest of God's law, is the people were to enjoy Sabbath rest. They were to weave it into their lives, their daily lives, their weekly lives, throughout the year at the appointed festivals and celebrations that God called his people to engage in. And, and even in a giant way, once in a lifetime at the year of Jubilee, that God built this principle of Sabbath deep into the culture and the identity of his people. Stopping for moments to connect with God. Making space where he is the focus. And whether that's slowing down to spend time in prayer, whether that's time enjoying space and freedom, maybe outside and, and, and enjoying the creation and the good things that God has given us. Maybe that's celebrating with friends and with family or my personal favorite, slowing down to enjoy a good meal or a small treat. I think coffee and a donut is like, it's just like Sabbath in five minutes, right? And it's about building those rhythms into life that you're not a machine. That you're not just built to work and work and work and work and drop dead, but that God wants to deposit good things into your life. And how can God, how can God access the depths of who we are when we don't slow down to make space for that? And I love, I'm going to get distracted and go on to this for too long if I'm, if I'm not careful. But that idea that, that, that Sabbath should be something that is filled with joy. That it's not just stop, stop working so much, you know, stop being so busy. We, we've, so often you'll hear it preached and it's like, a, you're, you're too busy, stop it. You know, like this kind of 
here's another rule, like, as, as if you haven't got enough things to do, stop being so busy and, you know, spend time with God, like it's a chore. And yet Sabbath was designed to be a celebration. God, I've, I don't know how many times I've said it, you, we're to worship God with food. I think one of the most common things that you see in the Bible is people stopping to eat together. It's not a coincidence. I think when we slow down and genuinely enjoy the good things that God has brought into our life, that is an act of worship just like any other. But what is dangerous here is the mentality of the Hebrews. It says in verses 16 and 17, the, the Hebrew overseers go to Pharaoh and says, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants have, given, have been given no straw and we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten but the fault is with your own people. Three times they identify themselves as the servants of Pharaoh. Are we the servants of Pharaoh who keeps us enslaved, or are we the servants of Yahweh who fights for our freedom? Church, we need to be aware that there are forces that would drag us from God. Church, if, if there is a spiritual nature to the world that we live in, then there are forces that would look to, at, at the very least, undermine your faith in God and keep you isolated and unconnected, or at worst, to slowly turn you away from God entirely. One of my, I've shared this illustration probably too many times, but one of my favorite illustrations uh, comes from the Swedish warship, the Vasa. Uh, and this was meant to be the flagship of the, the Swedish fleet during the height of Swedish naval power, the most uh, powerful naval vessel in the world at its time. And within just a kilometer into its maiden voyage, it finds itself at the bottom of the harbor. And one of the key reasons, and I love this, is hilarious and tragic. One of the key reasons is that during different stages of its construction, two different rules of measurement were used. You had the Swedish feet, uh, so when it was constructed in one part, using this measurement called Swedish feet, which is 12 inches, which is what you'd expect. But during a different part of construction, it was using what was referred to as the Amsterdam foot, which was 11 inches. And so what you found over the course, just the difference of an inch, compounded over the construction process, bit by bit, extrapolated over the whole construction led to this incredible ship being misshapen, misformed, unable to keep buoyant and sinking to the bottom of the harbor where it sat for 300 years, over an inch. Gradually, slowly over time, inch by inch, Sometimes we are dragged away from God. In C.S. Lewis's uh, incredible book, The Screwtape Letters, in which he kind of posits these conversations between uh, demonic forces about, about their Christian subject, uh, is, it says this, there is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. And he refers to, to God here as the enemy, of course. But that idea of suspense and anxiety, those are little things, those little moments, those, those things that may not even happen, those anxieties about the future, those tiny things slowly chipping away at our confidence, and as he says, barricading our mind from faith and trust in the God who loves us. 
Church, you will rarely find that it is one gigantic moment that robs you of your joy. But more often than not, it is a series of small, potentially tiny challenges that collect and compound till they overwhelm you. We find ourselves in that slow march into slavery. Pharaoh says to the people, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. He, he longs to keep them enslaved. He says, get back to work. You won't be given any straw, but you must produce the same quota of bricks. And right at the end of the passage, Moses, dejected, hopeless, confused, goes to God and says, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Why have you even sent me here? There's a danger of seeing our life with too short a perspective. It was only in the last chapter that, that, that God said to Moses, this is what I'll do. He told him he would face opposition from Pharaoh. He prepared him for that, and yet moments later, Moses is without hope. God has promised redemption, but we're too focused on what go, is going on right now that we're so distracted by our situations that we fail to place our trust in what he's promised to do. How's, how's your memory? It's a quick test of, of how old you're feeling. Is it, how many of us could walk into a room and just completely forget what you're doing? It's, it's scary how often that happens to me at the moment. You walk in, you know, you know you're there for a reason, you know it's important, you know, you, you got up off your backside to do it, so it must have been a pretty good reason. To, and yet you're standing there in a room looking around like a lost child. And I've had, I've had moments where my children look at me and say, Dad, what's the matter? And there's, there's just this look of vacant confusion on my face. And I've no idea why I'm here. And, and, and I'm, I'm just I'm going to have to go sit back down and hope that the thought comes back to me. I've, I've got no other option. I've just forgotten what I'm doing. There's one theme that runs through the Old Testament, and it is probably the second most consistent theme, the first being God's faithfulness, but the second is Israel's forgetfulness. It just shows up again and again and again, and, it, and, and I can remember as a young man reading the Bible, getting so frustrated with it. He's going, well, how on earth are these people who've seen God's deliverance, they've seen the goodness of God, he's come through for them time and time again. How is it they keep turning their back and forgetting about him? And Moses is the same. He seems to forget everything that God has said to him. As if he was expecting everything just to be easy. Church, sometimes we need to be willing to go through the fire for the sake of the gold at the other side. And it's important to recognize this chapter ends without resolution. And sometimes that is what life feels like. That our chapter has stopped at that particular moment and there are no more words that come next. God was supposed to show up and we find ourselves worse off than before. Let me teach you a, a, a theological term that you can pull out at parties. And I don't, do people still do cocktail parties? Is that even a thing? 
Let me teach you an incredible theological term that you can impress and amaze your friends and family with. Why are you laughing? It's, uh, the, the term is inaugurated eschatology. Now, you don't need to remember that. It's the idea of, of God's now, but not yet. The idea that, that, that God, has, God has spoken truth into this world, that God has acted decisively, that the cross has completed, the cross and the resurrection has completed the promises of God, has established God's kingdom, has launched the gospel into the world, that has brought the Holy Spirit onto the church, that God is on the move, that God is active, that God has won the decisive victory. But the story isn't over. It's that space between promises. It's, it's that Easter Saturday between the cross and the crucifixion of Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday. It's that waiting place that we occupy. And so you ask, well, what do we do? In that in-between space. And I think our hope is in the true rest and the true deliverer. Because sometimes the pain endures. Sometimes the darkness doesn't pass. Sometimes things don't work out. And friends, if we aren't honest about those experiences, the truth is when trouble comes, our circumstances can and will overwhelm us and our faith will not help us. If our belief is that God will just make everything okay and everything will always work out and every, uh, every situation will be right, then the problem is we will not only face disappointments, but those disappointments will break us. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Listen, church, trouble is guaranteed. I don't know how to preach the sermon, how to avoid trouble and have a super easy life. If you want that sermon, I, I, I can't preach it. I don't, know, I don't know where the Bible teaches that. And I certainly have not lived that experience. So I can't preach that message. But you know what? The sermon I certainly can preach is that in spite of trouble, Jesus stands to give you peace. The church, we have one who marches into the presence of Pharaoh, who stands against our Egypt and commands, let my people go. Can we trust him? Will you trust him? That God has made promises to deliver his people. And yet it seems that, that, that whatever seems to happen, things get worse rather than better. And God was supposed to send the deliverer, and yet instead freedom for his people is beyond their reach. That their hope has been sucked away from them. And yet when we ask the, the big question of Exodus is, how does it reveal Jesus to us? And how do we understand it? through Jesus. Church, not even the greatest evil can impede God's purpose. That at the cross, when it appears that darkness had overcome all hope, 
that God's promised one, that the Messiah, that the hope of nations had been cruelly betrayed by a friend, handed over to the authorities, mocked, interrogated, accused, tortured, and nailed to a cross for a slow, humiliating, and excruciating public execution. And yet his cry, it is finished, or it is accomplished on the cross, may as well have been a victorious, let my people go. God calls us to walk alongside him in those in-between moments, in those seasons of disappointment. There's an incredible quote, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters again. He says this, and again, remember this is written from the perspective of a demon focusing on a particular man in his life and speaking about God as the enemy, and he writes this. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take his hand away. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even within their stumbles. Don't be deceived, Wormwood, that's the, the demon he's writing to. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, that's to do God's will, looks around him upon a universe from which every trace of him, that's God, seems to have vanished and asks why has he been forsaken and yet still obeys? There is something deeply powerful in walking through those moments of disappointment and saying, God, I will not abandon my hope in you. God, that our promise, our promise from God is that as we walk through that in-between, that now and not yet, those moments of, of painfulness on earth with the promise of heaven and glory. God's desire is to walk alongside us. God's desire is our freedom, that he has won that freedom for us. That he has paid for our true rest. That in Jesus we have a true deliverer. Church, can I encourage you to stand? I'd like, to, I'd like us to pray before we respond now. God, we don't turn a blind eye to the, the painfulness of this world, God. And God, for some of us in this room, that is the season that we occupy, God, that we're, we're painfully aware of that in-between existence, God. Father, I pray that our, that our attentions and affections for you would not be chipped away by the anxieties and the hurt in life, God. but we would look to the one who has brought our deliverance. God, that we would look to our true deliverer. That we would look to the one that would lead us out of slavery and into celebration. God, 
God. We pray for that, that Sabbath rest in the midst of our hurting. God, not that the situation goes away, not that the pain disappears, God, but that within that pain you offer those, those moments of Sabbath peace. God, that we would come to you, Jesus, our Saviour and Deliverer. God, that we would bring our disappointment. We would bring our loss of hope. That we would bring our deepest frustrations, Lord. But we would receive those words. Take my yoke upon you. It is easy, it is light. Those words come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. God, that would be our testimony. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.